Good morning, Grace Covenant Church. Happy to be with you all here this morning. Would you open your Bibles to Psalm 48? Psalm 48. And as you're doing that, I'd like to ask you a question, as I typically do. And my question for you this morning is how often are you meditating on heaven? How often in your normal Christian life are you thinking, spending time, wondering, praying about heaven? I think, and at least I can testify for myself, that we probably, and I probably, don't meditate on it nearly enough. And when we do, we tend to think of it in our own kind of fleshly heaven. All the things that we want, all the things that we're hoping and desiring that will kind of help me and comfort me instead of maybe thinking about it the way that God has actually made it and how he has made it for his people. This morning, I want to draw your attention to a story that in Sunday school we'll be going through here shortly that was written by John Bunyan. It's the Pilgrim's Progress. And in this story, we get this beautiful picture of heaven. Christian and his pal, Hopeful, have been going through quite the journey. And they are weary. And they come upon what's called the Delectable Mountains. And they are given some rather blunt views of the destruction of those who are not in Christ. And they're needing some encouragement. So the shepherds who are amongst the mountains or amidst the mountains, uh, they give them some encouragement. So read or hear this this morning uh, from the Pilgrim's Progress. By this time, the pilgrims had a desire to press forward on their journey, and the shepherds agreed that they should. So they all walked towards the end of the mountains. Then the shepherds said to one another, let us show them the gates of the celestial city if they have skill to look through our perspective glass. The pilgrims eagerly accepted the invitation, and so they were led to the top of a hill called Clear and were handed the glass to look through. They attempted to look through it, but the memory of the last thing the shepherds had shown them made their hands shake so much they could not steadily look through the glass. However, when with shaky hands, they thought they saw something like the gate, and also some of the glory of that place. Then they were able to be prepared to depart. And they sang this song. Thus, by the shepherd's secrets are revealed, which from all other men are kept concealed. Come to the shepherds then, if you would see, things deep, things hid, and that mysterious be. This morning, we are all going to embark to look upon more than just the gates of Zion. This morning, we will look actually into the city of God. In fact, we come to the conclusion, rather sadly, in my opinion, of this series of psalms that we've been working through for the past few months, Psalm 45 through through 48. These psalms are understood as end-time psalms, psalms pointing to the coming of the king in Psalm 45, a psalm pointing to the destruction of all creation in Psalm 46. And then in Psalm 47, we see the the praise, right? God is our king, so we should sing. This is what all of 
the people of God will do for all of eternity. And then we come to Psalm 48, which is praising the king in his residence at the city of God. This is our eschatological or end time conclusion of Psalms 45 through 48. More than a glimpse of the gates that encouraged Christian and hopeful, it is a glimpse into the very city of God. Hear from the word of God this morning. Psalm 48, a psalm, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in a panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen, in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. Selah. We have thought on you, or we have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God and our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Hear the word of God for you this morning. As we begin to uh, unpack Psalm 48, this conclusion of these psalms, uh, I think the best way to break this up is into four different sections. The first is going to be verses 1 through 3, which you could call the city of God. Uh, then we're going to go through verses 4 through 7, which will be the king's of men. And then in verses 8 and 9, we will unpack the faith of the people of God. And then in the remaining verses, we are going to see what it's actually like in the city of God for eternity. These are the four ways we'll break it up this morning. And as you'll recall, the Psalter or the Psalms are done in a poetic fashion. Right? There's a lot going on here. And what we'll see in this structure is what's called a chiastic structure. In the beginning, it talks about the city of God. It describes what it's like. In the end, it talks about the city of God and describes what it's like. And then in the middle is where we're going to see kind of what is um, hopefully being punched right into our heart. Okay, that's the, the Hebrew there. It punches it right into your heart. Um, we're going to see uh, the difference between the people who don't have faith in God, and then the people who do have faith in God and what they do. So that's your application. If you're looking for application at the very end of this sermon, you won't find it there. You'll find the application right in the middle. So without further ado, let's jump in to Psalm 48, verses 1 through 3, the city of our God. Number one, I want you to realize that in this city of God, it will be a place of worship. 
the city of God will be full of praise, it says right in the beginning. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Now you'll see, as we always do, it seems like we keep hitting this again and again. The word Lord will be in all capitals in your Bible, right? It's capped out. And what that's saying there is that we are drawn to the covenantal name of God, Yahweh. So great is Yahweh, this covenantal king who out of his love, by his grace, has chosen a people to be in covenant with. He has chosen a people to enjoy this city with. This is the covenantal God that we worship. And that is why he is greatly to be praised. Now, as we learned in Psalm 47, he is king and we should sing. And as we look to the city of God, the heavenly Zion, I want you to realize that you need to be ready to sing. If you don't like singing, you're not going to like the city of God because that's what it will be filled with, which is what we see in the very first verse. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised in the city of our God. Now, secondly, we are going to get a description in this first section of the city of God about what it's like, or not what it's like, but what it looks like. So Zion, we see how it is described, God's holy mountain. In the Hebrew, holy mountain literally means mountain set apart. There's none like it. There's none that compare. It is set apart. It is consecrated for holiness. It is a specific mountain set apart after the uncreation of Psalm 46. If you remember, the mountains are thrown into the sea in Psalm 46. And now Psalm 48, we see this holy set apart mountain. Or maybe you can think of it as the new creation or the new heavens and the new earth. This mountain is set apart. And its beauty is seen in how it is elevated above all others. Beautiful in elevation. Now, I'm going to tell you that I think this helps us understand that this psalm is pointing to the end. I've been making this kind of... um, point from Psalm 45 all the way to Psalm 48, that these psalms are pointing towards the end. And you might say, ah, I'm, not, I'm not sold, Andrew. I'm not there. I, I want you to realize that the elevation of Mount Zion is clearly pointing us to the end in this psalm. Because although, yes, there was elevation in Jerusalem, which can be known as Zion as well, Uh, back in the Old Testament, depending on where you approach Jerusalem geographically, you didn't always go up. It wasn't always elevated. At some places, you actually had to go down to get to Jerusalem. And what this psalm is clearly trying to get us to see is that this is an elevated place where all eyes will look up to gaze upon the city of God. Now, this Mount Zion is the joy or happiness of all the earth. I think we can clearly say that right now, Jerusalem is probably not the joy of all the earth. I think there are plenty of people who don't like that place at all. And so clearly, we don't have the joy or happiness of all the earth yet, but it is coming. And then when we read the words, in the far north, 
Um, Derek Kidner, a wonderful commentator on the Old Testament, says this. He says, by an effective turn of phrase, it portrays the literal Zion in terms of the heavenly one, the community whose king is God, by identifying it with the far north of all places. This was a traditional expression in Israel and among her neighbors for God's royal seat. It is the equivalent to heaven. You can write down as a note, Isaiah 14, 13. You can go during lunch today and go back and read that and see how scripture interprets scripture. And Isaiah uses the same type of language and he is saying it in the context of heaven. So we are seeing this Mount Zion in the far north as a heavenly reality. And then we see, again, we're still describing what the city of God looks like, but In the city of God, God has taken residence and made it a fortress and a refuge for his people. Do you remember Psalm 47? I know you do. It's like your favorite psalm, right? Psalm 47, we read that the Lord, Yahweh, has gone up with a shout. And we were saying, what does that mean? And it was talking about the ascension of God. Well, where was he ascending to? To his throne, Where would that throne be? In this Mount Zion, his holy, beautiful hill. So we see in Psalm 48 that God has taken residence. This this conquering king that we learned of in Psalm 45, this king that will bring uncreation in Psalm 46, this king that we sing to in Psalm 47, who has ascended to his throne, has now made residence in the city of God. This is is the city of our God, friends. And it is a city that will be established forever. Praise be to God. And now we move as the psalmist here is going to move us from kind of depicting the city to depicting the people who would come up against it. The people who were not a part of God's covenantal people. As we have seen already his covenantal name used, and we'll see his covenantal love talked about soon enough. But we read, For behold, the kings assembled. They came on together. This theme of kings gathering is similarly very eschatological or very end time pointing. Now, Some of you might go, well, there were tons of times where the kings gathered up uh, to conquer Jerusalem, and sometimes God threw them into confusion, and there was no um, uh, overcoming of God's people. Yes, I totally understand that. We just don't have that clearly here. And with all the talk of the end that we're already getting and we will continue to get, I don't think that's what's happening here. I think what we see is the end happening where everybody is coming against the city of God. All these kings gathering up. It's, it's reminiscent, because I know you want to at lunch just go through scripture, because we'll be here all day, of Ezekiel 38 and Ezekiel 39. So if you're a note taker, take down those two chapters because you will see this gathering of of Gog and Magog and coming to destroy the city of God. In fact, it sounds a lot like Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. Everyone's favorite chapter of Revelation, right? Chapter 20. And we read this in Revelation 20, 7 through 10. 
And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And there they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Well, in Psalm 48, we see as they came together, as soon as they saw it, they were astonished. These kings were awestruck by the city of God. And in fact, what what ends up happening is this progression of craziness. So they see it and they're like, whoa, this place is huge. And this fear turns into an outright panic. And then the panic turns into flight as they try to escape. They They can't comprehend what this city of God is. Have you guys ever been in a place where you've seen panic break out? Maybe some of you are concert goers and you've seen kind of the tide of a concert all of a sudden break out into sheer craziness and people are moving all over the place. No one has control anymore. They're starting to run this way and that way. People are yelling and screaming and no one has any idea what's going on. That's what's happening. Okay, I can remember um, as a police officer being part of marches and seeing how all of a sudden an entire group can lose their mind within seconds. Panic takes over, fear and flight, and now everybody's climbing over each other, and it is a spectacle. That's what's happening when these kings have been confronted with the city of God. However, there is no escape for them. As trembling and the pain of the day of the Lord is upon them, they experience this anguish as of a woman in labor. Now, I can't speak to that, obviously. Um, And thank God. Ladies, you can blame Adam and Eve. But what we see in the Old Testament, when it talks about this anguish of labor, this sudden um, thing that overtakes them, this is actually pointing us to the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. This is not the first time it's used. It's used a ton. And when it's used, it's pointing us to what's quite commonly called the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord in the Old Testament is what we know as Christians as the second coming of Christ. It is where the judgment of God will be poured out, where the wrath of God will be poured out on those people who are not a part of the covenant community of Christ. This is what we're seeing Here, as this anguish as of a woman in labor. This is the coming of the day of the Lord. And it talks about how the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. God destroys his enemies by his might. He shatters them. This should remind you of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 says this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, 
I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is what we're seeing in Psalm 48. This is the same thing that is happening, is that the kings of the earth are coming to to burst the bonds of the Lord in the city of God, and they are sorely mistaken. But what we have now in this destruction, friends, I want you to hear if you are visiting here with us today. Or if you are here today and this is a place that you call home and you are not a Christian, friends, stop pretending. This morning is the day to realize that there will be a judgment. Christ will dash his enemy to pieces. And if you don't have faith in Christ, if you are not repentive of your sins, if you are not following Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're one of these people who are gathering up against the Lord. So stop pretending this morning. Realize what is in store for you. It is destruction. And I pray and I hope that you are convicted by this reality and that you repent of your sin and you put your faith in that great king from Psalm 45 who has come to sit on David's throne for eternity. The one who offers you repentance. He can give you faith in him. Just ask Christ now we come upon the faith of the people of God. So the, the psalmist has talked about this. He has talked about this crazy destruction that will happen about the people who are not the people of God. And then he's going to focus on three ideas. So we have talked about so far the city of God. We have now talked about the kings of men. And now we are going to talk about the faith of the people of God. And there are three main things that the psalmist is going to point out to us here. Number one, we have heard. The faith of the people of God comes from hearing. This should sound familiar to us as Christians. When you read in Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But faith came by hearing, not just in the uh, New Testament, but in the Old Testament as well. This actually takes us all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 through 9, where we are commanded to raise our families in the fear and admonition of the Lord, telling them what the Lord has done. In fact, this morning you participated in hearing when Richie read to us um, uh, the call to worship. He pointed to God's faithful acts throughout redemptive history as he has shepherded us and he has guided us throughout all time. We are called to hear the wonderful deeds of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? I hope it does because every time I teach on a psalm, I feel like I talk about this. It is the Psalter reminds us of the wonderful deeds of our Lord because we forget So we need to hear it again and again. The faithful people of God have heard of God's wonderful deeds. But that's not all. They've also seen them. We have seen. So number one was we have heard. Number two is we have seen. 
The psalmist says, not only have we heard of your wonderful needs, but now we have seen them and the destruction of our enemy. This, um, this reminds me of Job. Do you guys remember uh, the book of Job at the very end? So Job has been suffering well all throughout this book. And then he comes to this part where, where he does ask some questions and God puts him in his place. God asks him, were you there in creation? Were you a part of this? And, and Job is very quickly humbled. And this is Job's response. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You might say, well, Andrew, that was Job, right? That, he, he got to see the manifestation of God. He, he got to experience God in a, maybe in a way that I haven't. And of course the psalmist can say that because he watched the destruction of all these kings. But what about me? I don't think I can actually relate to this. But friend, you have seen the work of Christ. You have seen those who have never known Christ confess him. You have seen how God is, has actually changed your own heart and brought you from the kingdom of darkness into his glorious light. You have seen friends they, hearing and seeing. You have seen your friends who have come to know Christ. You have seen prayers answered. You have been in small groups where you have, you have labored to pray before God for family members, for jobs, uh, for reconciliation. You have seen family members who were once far off now be brought near to Christ. And we celebrate that because we have seen the wonderful deeds of our Lord. Not only have we heard of them as we have this morning and continue to do so, not only have we seen them, but number three, the third aspect of the faith of the people of God in this psalm is we have thought. That's an important part of the process. Thinking, meditating, consuming your mind with the wonderful deeds of the Lord. This, like I've said, is the entire thesis statement for the Psalter, for the book of Psalms. Remember the wonderful deeds of the Lord. Friends, please see the faith on display here and how you have that same faith. This morning, I asked you a question. How often do you meditate on heaven? How often do you meditate on the city of God? This morning, I want you, like the psalmist, to have thought on the city of God. I want you to think of the heavenly things where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on these things, not the earthly things. The psalmist is going to help this become a reality for you this morning. And he is going to do that by pointing out seven things that Psalm 48 is going to help you meditate on the heavenly things or on the city of God. 
So the faith of the people of God is hearing, seeing, and thinking, meditating, allowing that to consume your mind and push out the earthly things. And now he's gonna do such an incredible job. And I hope this morning, as you hear these seven realities to contemplate, to meditate, to think about, that you'll no longer be like, man, heaven, I guess it's cool. Like we'll go there one day, but my life here is pretty awesome. I'm pretty comfortable here. I've got a lot of nice things and uh, maybe your eschatology or your end times is a little too over-realized. You think you have heaven now, but you don't. Friends, would you think upon the city of God? So let me help you do that. I'm gonna help you think on the city of God. What will it be like there? This is our last section and we will go through seven things to help you think on the city of God. Of God. Number one, what will it be like? It will be full of praise. The psalm says, for God's name's sake. This is all for God, all the praise. His praises will thunder out of Zion to the ends of the earth. So your praises reach to the ends of the earth because. Great is the Lord, it says, the covenantal God who through his steadfast love is what is talked about in verse 9. His steadfast love has taken a people unto himself and he's brought them all the way to the city of God. Friends, you can't help but praise God when you're there. Your heart will be so full, your mind will be so consumed by this city that this place will be utterly full of praise. Number two, to help you think about what heaven will be like, the city of God. Number two, it will be full of righteousness. God's right hand is filled with righteousness. Right actions Maybe, maybe to help you think of this is the morality of God. The Ten Commandments will be on full display in the city of God. Especially because Christ our King that we saw in Psalm 45 will be on His throne. Christ who is the revealed righteousness of God. The one who gives us his righteousness so that we can be the righteousness of God. We will all be together in this place. 2 Corinthians uh, is a good place to think of when we are trying to think of this righteousness of God and how we will have it and how God has given it to us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The city of God will be full of righteousness. During our pastoral prayer this morning, Pastor Joel reminded us of what is happening in our society. We see that the righteousness of God is not on display. It's not hard. Pick up your phone, watch the TV, whatever you want to do, you have to combat this reality that we don't have the righteousness of God on full display yet. Don't you long for it? Don't you want that righteousness of God? So think of heaven. As you are experiencing whatever suffering you are, because you all are, 
I love you. I'm a part of your lives. I hear it. I understand that you are walking through hard places. Long for heaven. Long for it. Keep that at the forefront of your mind where the righteous, the perfect righteousness of God will always be on display. Number three. Heaven or the city of God will be full of God's righteous judgments. God, the most righteous, perfect judge, will decide all cases. He will reconcile all wrongs. He will distribute all judgment in all cases from past to eternity, and they will all be perfectly righteous. Are you waiting on pins and needles to see what the Supreme Court will say and whatever case that's coming out, whatever new political hot topic that you're hoping that they'll be your savior? Wait for the righteous judge. Think upon him and what his judgments will be for eternity. Stop getting caught up in the earthly things. We want things to change. Of course, we want things to get better. Of course, but when it doesn't happen here, your life doesn't crumble because you long for that righteous judge. You long for the city of God. Number four, thinking of righteousness and judgments, the city of God will be full of gladness and rejoicing. Uh, James Hamilton Uh, comments on this chapter when he says the psalmist calls mount zion populated by the daughters of judah to rejoice in response to god's judgments just judgment wins god's praise righteous character results in a good exercise of power and steadfast love surrounds the presence of the lord and his dwelling place can you imagine heaven Are you dreaming about it yet? Are you meditating on it yet? As we will be full of gladness and rejoicing because we're not yet. This is what we are thinking about. This is what, like with shaky hands, holding that glimpse, that, that whatever he was using, the telescope or whatever Christian was holding in that beginning uh, that I started us off with. With shaky hands, we're looking and we're seeing the city of God on display before us. Oh, friends, would your thoughts be on it? Number five, the city of God will be full of safety. The psalmist describes the safety for those who are God's covenantal people the ones that Christ came to die for. He describes the towers, the ramparts, the citadels of the city of God. The same towers that left the enemies awestruck leaves the people of God awestruck. Although the kings of men fled in a stupor of panic, the people of God run towards God to be comforted by the majestic power of their God, wrapped in his steadfast love and are full of his gladness. We don't have safety here. Read the paper or look at, scroll through your app. Shootings are happening. And we're more aware of them now than we've ever been. We don't have promised safety here. So dwell for the place That does. Number six. The city of God 
will be full of God. Like, stop, mic drop. We, we didn't have to do all the other ones. We could have just said that one and be done. The city of God will be full of God forever. The psalmist proclaims that all generations should hear this wonderful news that their God will dwell with them forever and ever. A promise that God continues to make to them. I will be your God and you will be my people. Psalm 46, we talked about this omnipresent or or a God who is outside of time, this omnipotent or this all-powerful God and this exalted God, this God who will be praised, that God, he will be with you forever in the city of God. His steadfast love will fill our hearts and minds. His righteousness will guide our actions and his judgments will, shall bring us eternal rejoicing. No wonder eternity will be filled with praise. And then finally, number seven. And I hinted to it already. But the city of God will be full of God's guidance. We end here appropriately. If the city of God was not something that you were longing for yet, hear this. All throughout redemptive history, we see God act as our shepherd. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Every one of us. From Adam and Eve to Noah, to Abraham, to Jacob, to Judah and Joseph, to the people of Israel, to David, to the exile, to the new people of Israel, to all of us in this place, we are all like sheep so desperately in need of guidance. And guess what? God has always guided us, and he will do so forever. We've been jumping around to a lot of psalms, and we're not done yet. Psalm 23, one that is very near and dear, I'm sure, to all of your hearts. Hear again how our God guides us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads or guides me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads, there it is again, me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Friends, hear of the good shepherd. Hear of the one that will guide you forever. This is the guidance that we heard Richie talk about in the beginning. All of redemptive history, even your life, bringing brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of life, he has guided you. He has done it for his name's sake. But he'll do so forever. As we read about the valley of the shadow of death, it should draw our attention to how this psalm ends. He will guide us forever. Now, some of your Bibles have a little asterisk there, and they've got a little footnote. And maybe you're reading it. I'm seeing some heads go down. But hear this incredible (laughs) translation. He will guide us beyond death. What a hope. Our Savior will guide us beyond death to our heavenly abode in the city of God where he will guide us forever and ever. 
Friends, you must think on the city of God. As you continue, this is why Paul, to the letter of Colossians, talks to the people. And he says, would you set your mind on the heavenly things? Would you think on the heavenly things? He tells us that so that we, although we are sojourners and exiles here in this land, we have a hope in the city of God. And it draws me to the very end of the pilgrim's progress. Spoiler alert. As Christian is walking towards the water, And he realizes that he has to cross over the water in order to get to the city of God. This is showing us death. And here goes Christian as he steps out into the water. And he panics. He's scared. Death has finally come. The waters are overtaking Christian. And then he realizes. He calms down. He knows who his shepherd is. He knows that his shepherd will guide him beyond death. And that's what he does. And then the trumpets blare, the gates open, and Christian walks into the city of God. Friends, would your minds be on the city of God this morning? You have heard, you have seen, and now you must think about the heavenly things. Let's pray. Oh God, our God, we need your help. Our minds are always flooded with the earthly things. On our own flesh, we are consumed with our own ideas, with our own idols. Father, take those out of our minds and remind us of these beautiful realities of the city of God. May we praise you. May we sing songs that remind us of our heavenly hope. And may we be hungry to be guided all our life, even through death and on through eternity by you, our Lord and our God. In Christ's name do we pray, amen.